Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday. It is June 26, 2020, and here we are. Another crazy week behind us. I thank you so much for joining me so we can play that um, crazy game of catch-up and try to figure out everything that's been going on uh, and where we go from here. Those of you who are familiar with me know that I spent 30 years of my life working for the old INS, first as an immigration inspector at Kennedy Airport, spent a year as an adjudications officer, and then spent 26 years as a special agent, Uh, many of those years assigned to the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, where I pursued uh, aliens who were engaged in drug trafficking, terrorism, violent crimes, and so forth. And in the course of my duties, I worked very closely with members of the New York City Police Department, New York State Police, and other police departments from around the country, other federal agencies of the U.S. government, and law enforcement agencies from other countries, including Canada, Great Britain, Japan, uh, and Israel. So the issue about police and what we do with police and law enforcement is one that is obviously very close to my heart. And it's an area where, and I hate to use the term, but I believe I do have some expertise. So I thought that today I would share with you my thoughts, my concerns um, about some of the crazy things that we're hearing and that we are seeing happening across this great nation. Let me begin by asking all of you a question. With all the news that has been going on the last week or two, coast to coast, border to border. Do you know the name Horace Lorenzo Anderson? His friend said that he went by his middle name, Lorenzo. He was 19 years old, Horace Lorenzo Anderson. It's amazing. You have to dig deep, it seems, to find his name. Everyone knows what happened to George Floyd. There's no excuse for what happened. George Floyd happened to have had a criminal history, but that doesn't mean that he should have been killed or he should have been beaten up or roughed up. As an agent, I've arrested international fugitives, wanted for murder, wanted for terrorism, wanted for armed robbery and drug trafficking and rape. I've arrested people who've committed crimes you couldn't even begin to imagine. They were so depraved. But my job as an agent wasn't to extract justice, so-called, on the street. My job was to bring that person in to face justice in a courtroom through the system. I'm very proud that in my 30 years, I never had a complaint about excessive force, and I was involved with the arrests uh, directly and indirectly, literally, of thousands of individuals. So that's not to say that police officers or agents who make arrests may not have claims made against them by people they arrest, and they do it for two reasons. Number one, to get even with them. You know, you messed with me, I'm going to mess with you. And to discredit them so when the day comes that you go to court, they like to try to muddy up the the agent or the police officer's name. And I get that. And sometimes there's just no way around a violent confrontation. I had my share of fights in the street. Most people surrendered peacefully, but there were a significant number of people you had to chase, you had to tackle. Uh, You may have wound up throwing punches at each other. It happens. 
being in law enforcement is a dangerous job. And the people that we were going after, many of them were very dangerous individuals. <clears throat> By the way, I've even, I even arrested a guy working in a glass factory. Now, you would think, well, what could be bad there? Turned out the guy that I arrested first falsely claimed to be a United States citizen. Uh, he wasn't. We took him downtown to try to figure out who he was because his story fell apart about how he had naturalized. We called in to see if we could uh, find a record because if an alien naturalizes, there's certainly a file. There's certainly a record. We couldn't find it. Turned out he lied about his immigration status. He also lied about his name. This very nice guy with a big smile and his boss told me how great a worker he was. He trusted him with the keys to open and lock up the factory. The guy had the combination to his safe. He even allowed the guy to have dinner at his home with his family, and he allowed him to sleep on the couch occasionally. Turns out that this guy lied about his background. He was from Honduras, not Mexico. It's not a Mexican thing. Uh, let's, let's dispel all that garbage. Okay, I've arrested terrorists, uh, including one guy who was Irish, involved, uh, allegedly involved with the creation of uh, bomb components that were used to kill a judge and his pregnant wife in, in Northern Ireland. I've arrested uh, Israelis, including an Israeli wanted for murdering a Palestinian woman back in Israel. We sent them back to Israel to stand trial. I got an award from the government of Japan for helping them send a woman home. She was part of a cocaine smuggling operation that emanated from the United States and sent drugs directly into Japan. This isn't about race. All those lies, oh, it's about brown skin and black skin. No, it's about people violating the laws. That's what this is about, like any other law enforcement agency. But this one particular guy had actually been deported from the United States and came back illegally and was actually serving time in a federal penitentiary for illegal reentry because he had been deported because he pleaded guilty to being involved in a homicide. He's involved with a murder, does jail time, gets deported, comes back, escapes from a federal penitentiary, and gets a job at a glass factory, and there we are. That was what my job was about. You never knew who you were dealing with when a law enforcement officer stops somebody, whether it's a car stop, somebody on the street, you're dropping a hook into a very deep ocean, and you know you've caught a critter. The question now is what kind of critter did you catch? That's what law enforcement is about. But the point of the matter is what happened to George Floyd was an outrage for which I have no words to describe my feelings. I will tell you, it has kept me awake at night. And the guy had done jail time. He, he was involved with armed robberies, according to newspaper reports and so forth. He wasn't an angel. But that's not the issue. The issue is how police officers and law enforcement officers are supposed to carry out their sworn duties. And 99% of law enforcement officers are careful to abide by the laws, abide by the rules, abide by the regulations for a couple of reasons. One, that's what we're required to do. It's about professionalism. And number two, nobody wants to get jammed up. So there's all sorts of motivations for law enforcement to do the right thing, but occasionally you have people in law enforcement like any other profession who shouldn't be there. I've made this point before, and I'll make it again. According to Johns Hopkins University, a study that was done about two years ago disclosed that the prior year, I believe it was 2017, and I'm sure the numbers stay pretty constant year after year, over 250,000 people died because of medical malpractice. Does that not take your breath away? 250,000 People. And by one way of computing it, this is up to Johns Hopkins how they did the study, <clears throat> that number could be nearly twice as great, 440,000. I've yet to hear anybody call for getting rid of doctors and hospitals. Have you heard anybody suggesting we close hospitals because 250,000 people die every year because they screw up in the hospital or a doctor's office? Think about that. Also realize that when a doctor or a nurse or a technician screws up, 
their lives are not on the line, generally speaking. When a law enforcement officer is out on the street and makes a mistake, it could cost him or her their lives, their partners' lives, innocent people. Their li- they really, literally, folks, have skin in the game, to use that expression. So when you're out there, you've got to make a quick decision knowing that your own survival hangs in the balance. The doctor doesn't have that kind of concern generally. You know, the old joke, doctors bury their mistakes. I'm not justifying any loss of life anywhere. A single loss of life is a tragedy all by itself. This isn't to minimize anything, but it's about being rational about what we are listening to and what is being called for and what is being recommended. You have politicians who don't give a rat's tail about governance, you would think. You would think that that's what this is about, you know, as the Declaration of Independence says, you know, in order to form a more perfect union. Government of the people, by the people, for the people. Really? Once politicians take bribes, it's over. And they almost all take bribes. That may sound like a hell of a condemnation, but really, when you stop and think about it, isn't that what a campaign contribution is? Money given to a candidate to alter how that candidate is going to vote on an issue or establish rules and regulations for their towns, cities, and states? When people write significant checks to fund a campaign, they're expecting a return. And you have many wealthy people, very many powerful people, many corporations and special interest groups that will give money to two candidates running for the same office from opposite parties. Do you think that this is an ideological contribution? Oh, we like Charlie Smith because he's on the right side. Well, maybe. But then why are you giving money to Susan Brown, who's running against him for the same job? They do it so they can get influence, so they can have access, so they can be heard. You know, money talks and BS walks. And as the money goes up, the stakes go up and the demands get greater. And politicians, for the most part, know that if they can't get campaign contributions, they can't win an election. If you want to kill a politician's career, defund their campaigns. The Republican Party did it to Lou Barletta when he ran for the U.S. Senate. He was a congressman from Pennsylvania. He was mayor of Hazleton, first mayor to enact immigration ordinances, not out of xenophobia, hardly, He did it because the Dominican drug gang set up shop in his once very quiet town. And this town that hadn't had a murder in years suddenly had two homicides within a couple of months. And the people of the town were frightened and they were outraged and they demanded that Lou do something about it. So he went to the Bush administration, George W. Bush, and they gave him a tour of the Justice Department and they gave him a mug with a badge on it and sent him home and said, sorry, Mayor, you're on your own. So he enacted the first ordinance on the city level that would punish those people who knowingly hired illegal aliens or provided them with housing. He was promptly sued. I was his final witness at the federal trial that followed. We've lost our minds. And immigration is a major factor in America's poor. America's minorities are getting hammered because both parties want open borders. They want to flood America with foreign workers to drive down wages, and we wind up displacing American workers, and you wind up with homelessness. You wind up with kids not being with their families. But no one seems to give a rat's tail if an American family is split up, but don't let it be an illegal alien family. And by the way, that family probably got split up long before the kid came here because smugglers were bringing kids to the United States, illegal alien children, with people that really weren't their parents, but they claimed that they were the parents because that way they wouldn't be held for more than a few days. This is what's going on in our dysfunctional, corrupt country. Does America have issues that need to be resolved? You betcha. But it's not about slavery. Thank God that ended how many, how many decades ago, 150 years ago? We're talking about a government that no longer seems to care about its own people and who suffers the worst, America's minorities and America's poor. By the way, not always the same. You have rampant poverty among the white folks who live in Appalachia and other parts of the country. This is an economic situation. Minorities have it worse. 
Um, and the politicians who claim to be their friend or anything, but with friends like that, you don't need enemies. If you think Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are looking out for you with their open borders policy to flood America with millions upon millions of more kids to go to school and more workers to compete for the jobs, boy, oh, boy, you're being naive. Now, I started out by asking you if you were familiar with Horace Lorenzo Anderson. That young man was killed in Seattle in that zone they called CHOP, that they're now chopping up ostensibly. You know, the mayor stood there and she said, oh, this is going to be a summer of love, some summer of love. There were three or four people shot, and Lorenzo Anderson, 19 years old, was killed. And if you read the article that appeared June 22nd, four days ago in the Seattle Times. Let me read this to you because this is really important. Teen who died in CHOP shooting wanted to be loved, in quotes, those who knew him recall. It was early morning after his graduation day. It could have been a joyous weekend, one to celebrate his accomplishments, earning a diploma from the Interagency Academy's Youth Education Program, or YEP, after time spent in and out of school one that represented the fork in a path that had been paved by a struggle. He wanted stable housing to hold down a job and eventually have a family. But 19-year-old Horace Lorenzo Anderson, who went by his middle name, was dead. Anderson was one of two people shot Saturday morning at the edge of the Capitol Hill protest zone known as CHOP, where the Capitol Hill organized protest. Seattle Fire Department officials said that he was pronounced dead at Harborview Medical Center, At 2.53 a.m., the King County Medical Examiner's Office confirmed his identity Monday and said that he died from multiple gunshot wounds. The other person who was shot, a 33-year-old man, remained in critical condition at Harborview. As of Monday, the shooting is still under investigation, and those suspects are in custody. Ambulances never made it to Anderson at the scene of the shooting, which occurred just after 2 a.m. Seattle police said they could not clear the area, and Anderson was brought to the hospital by volunteer medics. His shooting in a zone free of police and seemingly impermeable to emergency personnel created in response to the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis comes amid a deep national reckoning over a persistent racial injustice against black people, and Anderson was black. Oshani Washington, Anderson's former girlfriend, says she awoke to a late-night call from her father who shared the news. When she and her mother arrived at the hospital around 5.40 a.m., they were told to wait outside with Anderson's family. No one was allowed, not even his mother and father, were allowed to see his body, she said. The family was left with nothing but disorientation, her mother Brandy McWilliams said. Washington met Anderson when she was 16. He loved basketball back then, but soon put his heart into making music. He would take time to write lyrics and develop rap, she said. Anderson wrote about what it was like growing up in a rough neighborhood and said that Johnny Jefferson, who was close with Anderson and is the site lead at YEP, an alternative high school for students who have trouble succeeding in neighborhood schools. Now, here's the quote I want you to consider. He came from a part of Seattle where it was tough to survive in these types of conditions, Jefferson said. You either go with the wolves or you get eaten. Anderson had trouble finding safe housing. He got into trouble but having difficult things to work through, and that's what life is like for almost anybody, Jefferson said. You either get eaten by the wolves or join the wolves. The wolves are the criminals. You take police off the street and the wolves will flourish. Is that really what we want for America? Is that what we want for American children? You know, in 1978, I believe it was, the U.S. Embassy was taken, seized by the Iranians. This is under the brilliant leadership of Jimmy Carter. Goodness gracious. And, in fact, one of the people taken hostage was somebody I I had worked with over at State Department. He became the resident security officer in charge of providing security for the embassy along with the Marine Detachment that's assigned to our embassies overseas. And because those, I believe it was 51 Americans were taken hostage, the United States does not negotiate with hostage takers. We don't negotiate with terrorists. Because if you do, 
you're legitimizing what they're doing, and you're sending the message that if you kidnap Americans, you can use them as bargaining chips. That is why you don't capitulate to terrorists and to hostage takers. And that's what these mayors did, certainly what the mayor did in in, uh, Seattle, capitulate and say, oh, it's okay, we'll give them the police precinct, we'll give them the concrete blocks, we'll let them set up their own city within a city. It might be lawless, but what the hell, we're going to have a summer of love, some summer of love. Ask the parents and friends of, uh, of this young man, uh, Mr. Anderson, summer of love. But because of that situation with hostages, we, that is to say federal agents, were given a full-day seminar on what to do if you are taken hostage. The only way that you're going to be released is if the takers decide for whatever reason to release you, or we find a way for Delta forces to come in and and, uh, get you out of there. It's not going to be a negotiation. It's going to be a violent act by our military to get you freed should that happen. It may or may not work out well. So they taught us survival tactics. And one of the things that they told us, they brought in a team of psychologists, and they said, you know, it's always a good idea to have photographs in your wallet of, of your pet dog, perhaps, certainly your family, your wife, your children. Why? Because if the bad guys go through your paperwork and they see you have a family, you become more human to them. People, even the bad ones usually, can develop a level of sympathy and empathy for people that they relate to. The Stockholm Syndrome was all about that. If you want to read something interesting, you should read about it. There was, I believe, a bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden. And over time, the hostages and the hostage takers began to bond. That's known as the Stockholm Effect. Psychologists study it to this day. So they told us back then in the late 70s, make sure you have photographs. If you're asked about anything, you can talk about your family. Let them understand that you're more than just a person in a suit, that you have a child or children, you have a wife, you have a brother, uh, you have family. And, and make sure that they understand that, you know, you understand this isn't anything personal. Keep it objective, but let them understand that you're a flesh and blood human being because then people tend to relate better to you. It's great advice. Great advice. And that's why it's so important for the police to work with children. We have the police athletically, cops in the schools, so that kids grow up with police around them. They understand that they're there as guardians. They're there to help them. So what are we doing now? We're pulling police officers out of the schools. Now, why were the cops in the schools? Because of shootings in schools. And they said, well, if there's shootings in schools, we need to be able to protect our children. Well, that makes sense. And you can't throw a blackboard eraser at a guy with a gun. So they put security officers in the school, resource officers is how they're referred to in some locales, and their job is to protect the kids should somebody show up with a weapon. They do this in Israel. Schools are prime targets for terrorists and crazies. And when we establish no-gun zones, that doesn't mean that terrorists are going to see the sign and say, oh, my God, I have a gun. I better not go in. I mean, if you believe that that sign is a deterrent, get help. Don't even wait for the program to be over. Get on the phone and call for help. Call some psychologist or or maybe have yourself committed. Okay? Schools are the quintessential soft target. Maximum danger to the children. Big headlines that happened in Russia where a bunch of kids, hundreds of kids, were killed in a school by hostage takers. Schools are vulnerable. So we did something smart. We put police officers and resource officers in the schools to protect children, our most valuable resource. And now we're going to undo this because the mob is out there demanding, defund the cops, get rid of the police, get the kids out of the, get the cops out of the schools. Across the country, they're pulling police out of schools. God forbid, I don't even want to imagine what happens if, some terrorist looks at this and says, wow, what a great opportunity. And they go in and mow down a bunch of kids with machine gun fire. Are we going to bring the cops back? Is anybody even thinking more than one step at a time? Folks, life is a chess game. These imbeciles can't play checkers, okay? 
understand what we're talking about. We're talking about preserving the lives and the safety of defenseless children. But this is a political pawn, and you have people that have no spine and no brain making decisions. Discrimination is wrong. Treating people based on color is wrong. There's no way of explaining it any other way. It's wrong, period, full stop, end of statement. But when people start to talk about white privilege, whites are this and Europeans are that and this, we're undoing all of the gains that all the civil rights workers fought so hard for, Martin Luther King and all those other very brave and very decent people who tried to end segregation. We're bringing it back voluntarily. And who's doing it? The radical crazies. E pluribus unum is the national slogan out of many one that we should be ignoring color. Not to say that we ignore our culture and our heritage. I'm Jewish. I'm very proud of my culture and my tradition and my, you know, and and it's something that's wonderful. We all have a rich culture, rich heritage, and we're at our best and we can share it. We're at our best and we can relate to each other and enjoy each other's cultures and food and music and and traditions. How wonderful is that? But walls are going up all around America. We're being divided so that we can be conquered. Statues have been ripped down. Now, yes, some of the statues are of characters who were treasonous. And I, I'll be honest, I never understood it, but, you know, I'm from the North. I have friends in the South, and they had different feelings. They grew up differently. But I, I understand the frustration. I certainly wouldn't be happy with a swastika. Let's be blunt. I get it. But the way that you operate in a democracy is there's a legal process to be followed. America is not supposed to be a mobocracy, but a democracy. People are upset. They should be able to stand up at the town meetings and say, listen, I know that that statue has been there for 100 years. I don't like it. It's offensive. It's hurtful. And, you know, if you look at what happened with Bubba Watson, when he thought that a noose had been hung in his garage, and thankfully it wasn't a noose. Think of how many people marched with him, and they all had white skin. They were upset. The idea that somebody could have done this angered them, and it should anger everybody. You don't have to be black to be angry about racism. You don't have to be a Jew to be pissed about anti-Semitism. If you're a decent human being, we want what's fair and just for everybody. You see? So look at what is being done. Statues were taken down. Ulysses S. Grant, if you know anything about history, you know that he was the Union general who dedicated his life to ending slavery. Why would you get rid of his statue? There was another statue that was beheaded and dumped into a river, and it was the statue of a man who had come to America from Europe to fight against slavery. But the Europeans are all evil now, we're being told. I was in a debate on a college campus. I probably spoke about this some time ago with a colleague who retired from INS, became a college professor, got his Ph.D., and I participated with him in a debate. And I had a woman debate us uh, and an immigration lawyer, but the woman professor was from Peru. And at one point during the debate, to cut to the, the, the bottom line, she said that my problem was that my view of the world was Eurocentric. In other words, because of my European ancestry, I had a problem. Folks, there's a word for that. It's called racism and bigotry. <clears throat> and I called her on it. I said, how dare you? How dare you criticize me because of something I have no control over, my heritage, the fact that my mother and, and my dad's parents came from Eastern Europe. Uh, by the way, um, you know, Many of our people came from all over the world. I have no problem with people coming to America from any place in the world, as long as they come legally so that they're properly screened, so we know that they're not criminals or terrorists, and that they're not going to displace American or lawful immigrant workers. That's what the immigration laws are about. Those are the laws that I administered and enforced for 30 years. I even helped to write a couple of the laws that were added to the books including the law that makes reentry by criminal aliens a 20-year maximum felony. 
That law is now the most frequently prosecuted felony for the entire Justice Department. It enabled us to go after murderers and rapists and drug dealers and terrorists. What is wrong with that? Why would you not want to keep people out of your country who have the potential to kill and injure people who are here? And incredibly, when you stop and understand the issue, the people most at risk from transnational criminals, international terrorists, and international fugitives are the members of the ethnic immigrant community. And and, and not just from one part of the world, but everywhere. That IRA suspected terrorist was living in an Irish-American community. I arrested Jamaican drug dealers. In fact, one individual who was involved, we believe, with a homicide. Guess where he lived? Within the Jamaican community here in New York. The Chinese community, I I worked with the FBI investigating Chinese uh, human trafficking and drug smuggling. Guess where they lived? In Chinatown, among other people of Chinese ethnicity. The Israeli that was wanted for murder lived within the Israeli community here in the United States. This is how it works. So the people at greatest risk from people who shouldn't be here are the people who live in the ethnic immigrant communities, all of the ethnic immigrant communities, irrespective of what I call the superficial factors, race, religion, or ethnicity. But you see, the politicians on the extreme left started out by saying we're going to have sanctuary cities. And I thought, you know, and I wrote about it. They said, you know, this is a slippery slope to anarchy. If you're not willing to throw people out of the country who shouldn't be here and who have criminal histories, why should any American be punished for any violation of law? And, and, And here we are. I guess I was a man ahead of my time. So because because of the, the new bail law in New York, and we're told, oh, it won't involve people who commit violent crimes. Well, child molesters and robbers and gun runners and drug dealers have all been released. Rioters were released. Those aren't violent crimes. Rape and molesting a child isn't a violent crime. Besides being nauseating and infuriating, it's a crime of violence. So it's lie after lie after lie. And now we're being told, let's defund the police. There are things that do need to be done with the police. And I have to tell you, the New York City Police Department has always been very effective at innovating. It's the biggest police department in the United States. It's the department that other police departments from around the world come to work with them and learn from them. There was an amazing book that was written back in 1974 Let me just pull this up, because it became the beginning of how they did hostage negotiating. It became the standard. There was a guy by the name of Harvey Schlossberg. In January 1st, 1974, a book was published called Psychologist with a Gun. In New York, we don't have SWAT, special weapons and tactics, as they do in L.A. We have something called emergency services. Many of those cops were killed on 9-11. I had the privilege of working with them. When we executed warrants and the people were very dangerous and heavily armed, If we were able to, we would ask for them to help us. And, in fact, one guy who was wanted for murder in Chicago, he was a Mario Cuban. We let him in. We gave him asylum in the United States. And he was involved with killing. In fact, he killed an American black young man who got caught up in the drug trade. Um, Using my authority, I got a warrant so he could be arrested here in Queens, New York, and sent back to Chicago to stand trial. I testified in Chicago. He was ultimately found guilty and sentenced to life without parole for ordering the hit on a young man who I believe was 23 years old, an American black kid. That's the work we were doing, the work that Governor Cuomo deems being a thug. If taking people like that off the street to protect innocent people is a thug, then sign me up, thug. But Schlossberg developed the hostage negotiating team, which is part of emergency services. So it's kind of a dual thing. They have the weapons and they have, and you need those weapons, folks. They talk about demilitarizing the police. I want you to understand something. There are times when heavy weapons are necessary. Criminals are increasingly resorting to heavier and heavier weapons. We saw an incident in California about 20 years ago where two heavily armed and armored men went on a rampage through a quiet neighborhood in California, firing thousands of rounds. Bullets were flying everywhere. 
they were wearing body armor that was so effective that even though they were shot multiple times, it didn't stop them until the cops were able to get to a gun store because they didn't have the firepower they needed. They got long guns and eventually were able to kill, I believe, one of them, and the second guy killed himself, if I remember it correctly. I don't have uh, the material in front of me right now. But it was crazy that the cops had to run to a gun store and say, quick, give me a long gun. Police need to have whatever tools are needed, but it doesn't mean you go on patrol with a submachine gun. I've seen that happen, and that's nuts. Kevlar helmets, that's crazy. But you need those teams and those resources in reserve. We saw it at San Bernardino when those two terrorists killed a bunch of coworkers and then went on a shooting rampage in California. The police were supposed to return an armored personnel carrier because back then the call was get rid of the militarized uh, weaponry. No, you need to have them available in reserve the way you do fire engines and ambulances. They need to be ready at a moment's notice to respond to a mass shooting, to a terror attack. So let's be careful what we get rid of. If you want to make police better, don't cut them off from the community, incorporate them into the community. The police should not be seen as an army of, op- op- of, uh, uh, of occupation and shouldn't conduct itself as an army of occupation. Police officers should be part of that community. Ideally, they should live within the community, not live somewhere else. And we have that here in New York, you know, kids that live out in Suffolk County become cops and they're on patrol in Brooklyn. Well, that's fine. But I'm happier if these cops actually come from the neighborhoods or at least from the city where they're on patrol. Shouldn't be an ironclad requirement, but it's helpful because then you relate to the people better and they can relate to you better. I would love to see the cops in the schools, maybe even participating in sports on on one night a week or one night a month, basketball games at the high school. The approach that the police need to take to the community needs to be softer sometimes, perhaps. There are things we can do to really have community policing. We certainly shouldn't be giving cops quotas. You have to issue so many tickets and make X number of arrests because that tends to escalate situations. But here's something that we need to talk about, because the people that talk about de-escalating and then talk about cutting the police and warn people about the cops are really causing escalation. One-sided relationships aren't relationships. So if you convince young black men, for example, that the cop is going to kill them, and we've been hearing all kinds of irresponsible talk like that, when that young man gets pulled over because he blew a red light or he was going over the speed limit or he blew a stop sign instead of just pulling over and saying to the officer, here's my license, here's my registration. This kid might be so freaked out by all of this talk that's been out there about how the cops are hunting for them. that this poor guy is likely to take off, maybe engage in fight or flight with the police. It's not going to end well. It's not going to end well at all. If you're going to deescalate and I'm a hundred percent in favor of it, And you know what? If we could get rid of guns, I'd be the first one to say, that's great. I carried a gun for all those years. And every morning when I got dressed and I got ready to go on duty, I holstered my firearm and I always said the same thing. I pray to God that today I will not need my gun. No rational person ever wants to shoot another person. I was in about a half dozen situations where I came close to having to pull the trigger. And I remember that terrible feeling, and I remember the sweat running down my back, and I can't tell you how relieved I was. I didn't have to pull the trigger. We got the situation resolved. Nobody wants to shoot another human being. I love target shooting. It's fun. I find it relaxing, believe it or not, kind of like, I guess, golf. I don't do golf. I tried. I was a train wreck. But there's something nice about target shooting. It's an enjoyable sport for me. It's an Olympic event. But paper targets aren't human beings. If we could come up with non-lethal means of instantly stopping someone, even someone with a weapon, I'd be in favor. I wish we had a Star Trek, you know, phaser where you zap the guy and he's rendered unconscious without being hurt. Will that one day happen? Who knows? Certainly money should be invested in developing technology that's non-lethal. How much better would that be? The idea about being a law enforcement officer isn't about being a gunslinger. 
It's about preserving lives and protecting property and preserving the peace. And you want to do it with the minimum force necessary. In fact, when you make an arrest, that's the phrase you use. And it's not just words on a piece of paper. Minimum force was used to affect the arrest, whatever that minimum force is, you see. And I think that when we do the training, and it's always how quickly can you draw and fire your weapon, we need to have emphasis on situations where drawing your weapon is not the right course of action. Maybe we need to be paying more money, not less money, to police officers to attract people of, of a higher caliber. I hate using that phrase because we're talking about guns here, folks. Forgive me. Um, if we lose our sense of humor completely, it's over. But often police officers work for meager paychecks. It's not good. They have to make life and death decisions where their own lives are on the line. You want the best possible qualified people to do the job. Now, I, I want you to know that the police unions are very important. You're not hearing that from the radical left. And I know the, the folks on the right hate unions, but police unions we need. And I'll tell you why we need them. First of all, I, I belong to the American Federation of Government Employees when I was with the INS. And, and for the most part, they really did more of a job of representing the clerical staff than the agents. But if you're in law enforcement and you're chasing some guy down an alleyway, you're on your own. And if you get into a situation, you're, again, going to be on your own. You need someone to stand with you. You need proper representation, not to cover up something you shouldn't have done. If that's the case, you know, you deserve whatever happens. Cover up is wrong. You know, I've always said that to people. If you look at Watergate, Watergate wasn't as big a problem as the cover-up that followed Watergate. The facts are the facts. I remember when I was a kid, if I was playing ball and I broke a window, it was a home run. It was a home run because my father expected I would run home and he would first hear about it from me, not from someone else. If there's a screw-up in the street, uh, you're accountable. And anybody who tries to cover up something that happened, you know, shouldn't be in this profession of law enforcement. It's a noble calling. It really is. So, we, we, we need to have proper representation. And there's another reason when they say, well, we can't fire the cops. It's remarkable. But uh, if you watch 60 Minutes, Leslie Stahl interviewed the commissioner of the Minneapolis Police Department. And he said, well, the union doesn't let me fire people. But meanwhile, within 48 hours, within 24 hours of the George Floyd killing, he fired the cops, didn't he? And then here's what bothers me. Leslie Stahl said, well, the, the, the rather responding to the Minneapolis commissioner, he said, well, the president of the, of the police union accused um, Black Lives Matter of being a terrorist organization. And she kind of looked at him disapprovingly. And she, or she may have raised the issue with him, perhaps. Well, well, here's the point. And I'm not saying it's a terrorist organization, but I also can't forget the days that they marched through Manhattan chanting, what do we want dead cops? When do we want them now? And marching in other parts of the country where the chant was pigs in a blanket frying like bacon. You know, those are very terrible words. You could argue they're terrorist threats. I understand why black folks are upset. What, what's happened is wrong. But I don't believe there's systemic racism. Studies should be done. We need to figure out where we're going from all this we need to take down the barriers between police and the communities. That's how you do things. Going back to the training I had about if you're taken hostage, we have to humanize both sides of the equation. One-sided relationships aren't relationships. If you look at the cops as the enemy and you react in a certain way, that cop is going to see the person react a certain way, and then his adrenaline or her adrenaline goes up because the other person's adrenaline goes up, and sometimes you get into a situation that should never have developed in the first place. We need to humanize each other on both sides of that equation, not by insulting and attacking each other, but by sitting down and talking. You know, part of the problem with this technological era is people forgot how to sit down face-to-face -face with one another and look each other in the eye and have conversations. We're too busy twittering and tweeting and, and, and all that other foolishness. We didn't evolve over the millions of years to become where we are so that we sit there in the dark banging away on a keyboard. We need to sit down with each other and work through our problems. 
You know, I assure you that police officers don't want to be involved in fatal shootings. If they do, they're sociopaths and should be in a rubber room or a jail cell. That gun is there for self-defense and self-defense alone. And if it's used for anything but that, then there's a serious problem. We need a better way of screening people. I also have called for letting cops and law enforcement people retire, let's say, after five years. Maybe they've burned out. We do it with the military. You do a tour of duty that lasts four or five years, and then you get your honorable discharge, and you go on to do something else. We ought to be encouraging law enforcement officers who are stressed, who are burned out, to leave early. Maybe they should no longer be on the street. And by the way, Leslie Stahl never interviewed the president of the union, the police union. If you're going to make statements about what he said, don't you think that it would have been appropriate to interview the president of the union and get his perspective representing where the police are on this? Police chiefs aren't police officers, folks. They're politicians. They do the bidding of the mayor. They do the bidding of the town supervisor. They are, if you will, the ventriloquist's dummy. Their job is to implement the policies of that elected representative. The union is supposed to represent the the, the cop on the beat, the agent on the street. Why wasn't that president of the police union interviewed for the program? Let him explain why he thinks the group is a terrorist group. Maybe it's not. Maybe Leslie could have asked the right questions and, and seen through what might not have been an accurate statement. But to simply quote the guy and leave it hanging out there and, and, and you know, speak of him disapprovingly, well, those damn unions, that's the problem. And there's another issue that you need to know. Very often, government agencies, and I've been there, I was a whistleblower, and I came forward, especially after 9-11, um, I was forced to leave my job after I testified before Congress without authority. I've been before, I believe it's been 17 hearings in the House and Senate. I'm sure they don't want to hear from me anymore. It's amazing how America has changed in the 20 years, nearly 20 years since 9-11. We've lost our minds. The court just knocked down the president's use of money to build a wall saying, well, where's the proof? that the wall prevents drugs from flowing into the United States. Read the 9-11 Commission report about the fact that border security is national security. It's just remarkable how quickly everyone has wanted to forget this because of the globalists. What Leslie Stahl should have done is interview the union, because the union is there to protect the cop against unfair action by management, and that includes whistleblowers. If you have a cop out there who understands that things are going badly, the instinct of management is to fire the cop. Not because the cop is wrong, but because maybe the cop knows where skeletons are buried. Have you ever thought of that? The interesting thing in the federal government is that an agent is not supposed to go on national television to talk about what's wrong with the agency that he or she works for. The union representative has that authority, and that's an important authority shining the bright light of truth on law enforcement and other federal agencies so that the American people understand what's really going on. That's where the union is invaluable. Now, as I said, I know that the folks who are conservatives, oh, we hate unions. Well, my dad was a union member. He was a construction worker. But now, incredibly, it's the left that doesn't want the unions because they're using the union as the excuse. It's remarkable that the pres- that the uh, police chief in Minneapolis had been the head of internal affairs before he became the chief of police. So he should have certainly known that the cop who's accused of killing Mr. Floyd had 17 letters of complaint. In fact, he mentioned those 17 letters and said that he wound up with, I think, three letters of reprimand. Leslie never asked him, by the way, why only three letters of reprimand? By the way, the union might be able to protect someone from being fired but the chief of police can certainly assign a a troubled cop to desk duty, okay? The union can't stop that. And yet, instead of desk duty, this cop that had this troubled background, supposedly, was a training officer for these rookies that were out there and got into the middle of this nightmare. Why was he a training officer if he was such a bad cop? What happened to management? Why is nobody making management responsible? You know, there's a wonderful Yiddish expression 
that says that when the fish goes bad, it smells from the head. Understand that. Understand that. Everyone wants to point at the cop. How did the cop still stay on the job if he was that bad? How was he out on the street if he was that bad? And how in the world was he assigned to be a training officer for cops that had less than a week under their belt fresh out of the academy? Questions that Leslie Stahl should have asked, but didn't. See, there's lots of ways that we need to slice this apple. There's lots of ways that we need to look at how we make policing better. And certainly, nothing is so good that it couldn't be made better, as my dad used to tell me. But to simply point the finger and say, get rid of the cops, defund the police. No, I would argue we need to spend more money on the police, more money on training, more money on screening them, giving them the resources. And I will tell you that when a lot of police officers or law enforcement shows up to arrest a bad guy, the more people who are there, the less likely that the situation will spiral out of control. It did, of course, in the case of Mr. Floyd, but there's a real problem there from so many angles, as I've just pointed out. But usually, if you go in to make an arrest with overwhelming force, the bad guy, even the most sociopathic, is going to surrender, realizing that the odds are just not with him or her. But you need to have enough agents, enough firepower, good training, and proper leadership. All those factors need to be explored, not this knee-jerk response of, oh, let's just defund the police. We'll get rid of the cops. So tell me, folks, if we get rid of the cops and you have a crime going on and you need help, who do you call if there's no police? Oh, we going to have a, a place on a street corner with yellow crime scene tape? So if someone is shot, you know, put up the tape. And, and, and the morgue will send somebody in the morning? I mean, is that what we're looking for? Law enforcement needs to respond to a, a crime in progress when the crime is in progress. Here's the problem. The four most dangerous words that any law enforcement officer can utter is, you are under arrest. Because once that statement is made, the die is cast. You can't go back. You don't unarrest somebody. You have to take the person into custody. And God knows what's going to happen. Some people go peacefully and some people don't. Some just run. Some fight. Some might decide to try to kill you. And everything you do is going to be scrutinized in excruciating detail. And, and this is the other part of it that most people don't understand, because unless you've been there, you don't get it, especially with body cameras. The cop has a split second to react, knowing that his life or his partner's life may hang in the balance. And now, for the next three weeks, sitting in a conference room, people that maybe weren't on the street in the last 10 years, sipping their, co their coffees, their lattes, are going to dissect Everything you did and didn't do second by second by second. They're not under the threat of death or serious injury, but the cop in that situation is. The public needs to be trained to understand what it's like to be a cop. That program, PD Live, was wonderful. Cops was a good program. Why? Because it shows people what it's like to be a police officer. I mean, it's one thing to watch a program, something else to be in the middle of it, but you have an idea about the dangers and how difficult the job is and, and what's really at stake. So instead, we vilified police, and everyone is chanting, defund the cops. And the cops now know that if they're involved in anything, the knives are out. The cop is the one that's going to get hammered, excuse me, one way or the other. Accountability is one thing, but this notion of no matter what the problem is, blame the cop, folks, we're going in a dangerous direction. The law enforcement officers of our communities are heroes. They constitute that thin blue line, putting their lives on the line to protect our lives. If you don't think that's heroic, think again. You vilify these folks, and you make it clear 
that perhaps they need a new form of Miranda warning that reminds them when they go on duty that anything they do will be used against them. And police officers aren't foolish. They'll take the path of least resistance. And what does that mean? Do not go charging into a gun battle. Nothing good can come of it. If you don't get killed or wounded, you might get sued, you might get fired, you might get prosecuted. Show up after the gunfight is over, and all you do is put up crime scene tape and, uh, and go about your day. Of course, people will die in the process, and we're seeing that. We're seeing that. Look how many shootings we're seeing in New York and all these other cities. Now, I would suggest to you that when you speak to your friends and neighbors, not everyone's going to agree with you. Let your friend or your neighbor or your son or your daughter or your brother or your sister-in-law, let them talk. To be a good speaker, you have to be a good listener. To be an effective debater, you've got to be able to be a good listener. Let them explain everything to you. Don't be disapproving. Don't give them attitude. Just say to them, what would you do? And then ask them, where do we go from here? If there's nobody to respond to the call for 911, what do we do now? What do we do now? How do you protect yourself from sociopaths? You know, people can be very naive. I mean, how many times do you hear the story where someone is arrested, he's a mass murderer, he's got people tied up in his basement, all kinds of crazy stuff. Years ago, it used to be the Nazi war criminals. You know, 60 Minutes would do a story about it. So-and-so was the guard at a, at a, at a, you know, at a concentration camp, and 60,000 people were killed, including women and children. And the neighbor always has that deer-in-the-headlight looks and says, oh, my gosh, he was such a pleasant man. He always smiled at me. Unless you've been in law enforcement, so many people are so naive. You know, when I became a new agent, People would tell me on the job all kinds of crazy things. And in the beginning, I would say, oh, my God, that's not possible. After about a year or two and seeing things up close and in person, reality started to seep into the conversation. I would say, well, that doesn't sound very likely. About a year later, no matter what people told me, I had a standing answer. No kidding. Because I got to the point where I believed that cows could fly. Please understand that many people are well-intentioned, they mean well, and they're naive. Many of your friends that you have a problem speaking with now were people that you were attracted to because they were compassionate and decent and moral people. Think back to when you first became friends with some of the friends you have and you have a problem speaking with them today. Why do you have that problem? Because they're still naive. They're still not willing to accept reality. In theory, all sorts of wonderful things could happen. In theory, I should be able to jump out the window and flap my hands and fly like a bird. Don't try this at home because you'll need the ER on standby. Reality is very different from the fantasy world that the naive folks can create for themselves. Be sympathetic, be understanding, but try to introduce reality to them. We're in a struggle for the survival of our country, folks. Elections have consequences. Any politician who thinks it's appropriate to give territory over to a bunch of thugs, as we saw in Seattle, that resulted in the death of that young man, is not fit for duty. Anybody who thinks defunding police or, or following sanctuary policies is doing the right thing needs to be voted out of office. We live in a dangerous era, and America's enemies undoubtedly are involved in what's going on right now. We'll talk about that some more next time or, or during my podcast over at Dennis Michael Lynch, DML News, Team DML. But please understand, China and Russia and Iran have a huge footprint on our campuses. They're influencing how the curriculum is being written. They're influencing the staffing of our schools and our children are actually being indoctrinated to dislike their own country and somehow think communism is a wonderful idea. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know, I always like to make the point that democracy is not a spectator sport. We need to get involved. And most importantly, let's try to have calm and rational conversations with our neighbors and with the people who are close to us 
so that we could have a meeting of the minds the way we used to do in the old days. I thank you so much for joining me. I hope this program is helpful to you. Please tell all of your friends about my program and about my articles at Front Page Magazine, frontpagemag.com, and the podcasts that I do for Team DML. But um, be part of my bucket brigade of truth. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Be well. See you next week. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.